Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Well, uh, this is a little bit of old news at this point, but I think it merits discussion because it is a, a, a story of our age, you know, the, the sort of thing that happens in our time. I licked my finger and put it up in the wind, and I felt the wind shifting, and uh, I felt a breeze that said that this is, this is a story that in some way embodies the moment. So last week off, Mike, we discussed that Robert De Niro was allegedly going to play Travis Bickle in an advertising campaign for Uber, <laughs> which is is so funny. Uh, Uber, we are the people. <laughs> I mean, Robert De Niro, uh, a man who has made, you know, his share of bad movies, I think it's fair to say, over the last uh, 20 years or so. This seemed like a particular... A particular bridge too far. <laughs> I showed you this on my phone, uh-huh. and, and you said, "Did I not predict that you, there?" Exactly. Yeah. You, you said to me, "You said the world is such now that thanks to social media, this will be noticed. Uh-huh. People will be upset about this." Yep. And within a few days, uh, well, here's an article in Variety: A representative for Robert De Niro has denied reports <laughs> that the Oscar winner has reprised his role as Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver for an Uber ad campaign. Several published reports in recent days asserted that De Niro was revisiting the seminal character from Martin Scorsese's 1976 drama, a role that cemented his status as one of the great actors of his era. Reports of the plan for the commercial prompted Taxi Driver screenwriter Paul Schrader to slam the idea in a Facebook post. Ouch! Why Bob would do this is beyond my reckoning, Schrader wrote on September 20th, but I haven't seen it. If I'm lucky, I never will. Uh, in a statement, Uber confirmed that De Niro will be seen later in the year in the UK as a pitchman for the service, and also let it be known that the campaign does not have a taxi driver theme. Okay, I'm just going to interrupt. Liars. Liars. <laughs> Why else would you get Robert De Niro to, to pitch for Uber if you weren't going to make it Travis Bickle themed? <laughs> I found something kind of comforting about this story. It's like, even in this hyper-commercialized age when art is so devalued, when the great cinema of the past is mere content to our corporate overlords, it's like certain things remain sacred. And and everybody saw this and agreed, you, you can't do that. That's wrong. That's like putting a mustache on the Mona Lisa or something. This is something that fundamentally goes against, fundamentally sullies the spirit of the artwork. Yeah, I mean, I think you saw that as well, sort of in the immediate aftermath of that sort of like the aperture of the, you know, cryptocurrency advertising with celebrities, you know, right after the Super Bowl. I mean, it didn't help that the whole market for cryptocurrency tanked, you know, more or less immediately. But I mean, I can't quite remember where it fits in the timeline. But when we were talking about it the other week, I mentioned, you know, the Spike Lee, uh, you know, what what was the what was the tagline in Spike Lee's awful ad for Bitcoin? Well, I mean, what I remember about that ad was it's like Spike Lee. He's like, what is he sitting on a throne or something? And it's it's that double dolly shot that's in all his movies right, where he's right. stationary, but the background's moving. Our currency is not current. Old money, as rich as it looks, is flat out broke. Don't believe me? I got the receipts. We call it green, but it's only white. Where's the women? The black folks and the people of color. Native Americans got a nickel. A nickel! People don't even stop to pick up a nickel off the side. Seven million Americans have no bank account. 20 million are underbanked. Old money's not gonna pick us up. 
it pushed us down. That commercial was notable because like Spike Lee directed it and he brought the full weight of his style to it. He brought he brought all the Spike Lee stuff, the double dolly shot, everything. I mean, all those commercials were bad, like the Matt Damon one, the Larry David one. They all got flack, but for Spike Lee, it felt particularly bad because he was using yeah. the aesthetics that, that were so radical in some of those early movies. Well, I think that even at the kind of height of some of this stuff, you know, a lot of the advertising around it was so heavy handed you know, that it was off-putting for people. I mean, I think of that really bizarre late-night segment where Jimmy Fallon and Paris Hilton talked about their board Yacht Ape NFTs or whatever. I think perhaps because of the wider context in which all this stuff has taken place where, you know, there's been yet another great upward transfer of wealth. And, you know, during a, a lot of these ad campaigns, at least, a lot of less well-off people were kind of stuck indoors or they were forced to go to work when it wasn't safe. And then, you know, on TV, it's just these, you know, celebrities getting paid vast sums to to advertise these risky speculative investments that really, you know, especially in the case of NFTs, are more just sort of these totems of their elite status. I can't remember if uh, we discussed it on the show, but I wrote about it recently for Jacobin. Uh, the sense in which the ambient mood of the Biden presidency and the Biden era, or, or if you want, the post-Trump era, you know, I think it's... it's... Wishful thinking, buddy. <laughs> Okay, well, the post-2020 era, the ambient mood of that, where, where Joe Biden, I think, is perhaps somewhat incidental, is somewhat anti-political, you know, ambiently anti-political. Books about the Biden administration are selling far less well. I mean, we're talking like orders of magnitude less uh, in terms of volume sales than books about the Trump presidency or, or Hillary Clinton's loss in 2016. For example, there's a, an official biography of Jill Biden that I think has sold less than 5,000 copies. There's a book about, you know, the Obama-Biden partnership. You know, these are books by big legacy journalists that sold like 1,500 copies or something. The explanation for that is, I think, a pretty simple one. I mean, I think there was a lot of exhaustion, political exhaustion with kind of the, the Trump era, with everything being dialed up to 11, and people sort of just want politics to go away. And you see the same thing, by the way, across digital media as well, viewership for cable news, engagement with news content on social media, all of it. Now, having said that, I think that uh, at the same time as there is a sort of uh, dull anti-political sentiment. There's also a sort of a populist and even sort of softly insurrectionary one that, that's sitting sort of oddly in tandem with the former. And you see that in obvious ways with, you know, this remarkable strike by uh, UAW, which, you know, even uh, Republicans, if unconvincingly, in many cases are pretending like they support, you know, even Donald Trump is sort of having to pretend like he supports the workers, even as he attacks the union leadership and tells members, stop paying your dues, etc. I can't remember who made this point. So if you're listening and it was you, forgive me, but uh, I don't know, Well, have you been following this John Fetterman controversy with his clothes? And I mean, there's the clone. Yeah, am ambiently. Uh, I've seen I've seen certain... <laughs> our, ambient folks, that's our word of the day. Yeah, conservative politicians who, I believe it was Ted Cruz a few years ago that said, the Democrats are the party of Lisa and Marge, but the Republicans are the party of Homer and Bart. <laughs> Uh, but that doesn't extend to the dress code, it seems. Well, you know, there's multiple uh, sort of fake John Fetterman controversies going on right now. The one I really like is the one about how there's clones, because that's one where it's like, I don't even understand, like, what... What would be the virtue of there being a bunch of different Fettermans? It doesn't really make any sense. Like, what... If somebody can explain to me what the sort of deep, deep structure of that particular right wing conspiracy was, the is. real one executed at Guantanamo Bay <laughs> alongside Tom Hanks and Oprah Winfrey. Yeah, the, the walrus was Paul. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. 
But I saw someone make the point that, you know, in a lot of the sort of right wing uh, critiques of Fetterman, you know, the way particular way Fetterman dresses, there's been this very bizarre tendency to try to argue that what Fetterman is doing is actually elitist. I don't have you seen this? Well, that sounds counterintuitive to me. Well, exactly. So the argument goes something like, well, you see working class people, you know, real ordinary, you know, salt of the earth people, they respect dress codes because they have to, you know, work to get ahead. Whereas this slovenly guy is just showing up to the august setting of the United States Senate and dressing like this. So it's, you know, that's actually very elitist. And someone made the point that the fact that they are stating the argument, you know, they're stating the sort of standard conservative argument about, you know, etiquette and norms and how we have to preserve the augustness of spaces and stuff. They're stating it in sort of populist terms, which, you know, even if it's only rhetorical, you know, as with a lot of the uh, right-wing posturing around the UAW strike, does sort of give credence to the idea that in addition to this ambiently anti-political political mood, there's sort of an ambient populist mood as well. When conservatives feel like they have to make their case in sort of a quasi-populist register, I think that should tell you something. To give a more substantive example of that, something else I wrote about recently were these comments made by Senator Tim Scott, you know, who's one of, I don't know, the 15 people auditioning to lose to Donald Trump by 70 points. But, you know, there's been a lot of triangulation around the strike with people like Josh Hawley trying to pretend like, well, you know, I support the workers and, you know, not mentioning the union and that kind of stuff. But then Tim Scott comes out and says, well, you know, like Ronald Reagan, you know, we should just uh, smash workers who go on strike, you know, like Reagan did with the air traffic controllers. You know, they're asking for a 32-hour work week, and we need to be encouraging people to work more, not less. You know, if you if you are able-bodied in this country, you are going to work. You know, that's how he put it. And the thing is, I mean, he cites Ronald Reagan here. Maybe this is a somewhat heterodox interpretation, so people can feel free to disagree with me. But it seems to me that the innovation of figures like Reagan and Thatcher in the 1980s was to take all of the sort of, you know, neoclassical and, and neoliberal arguments for hierarchy and inequality and valorization of big business and all the rest of it, and to state them in kind of populist terms. You know, to whatever limited extent they did it, they were able to build popular constituencies for these policies. And what I like, albeit in kind of a perverse way about the way Tim Scott made this case, is that he's making kind of the same argument that Ronald Reagan would, but he's just stripping it of all the artifice that this is about some kind of collective betterment or uplift, right? Even trickle-down economics, the theory, at least at the level of rhetoric, is don't worry, this is going to trickle down to you. So there is a sort of a populist sheen to it. But anyway, Tim Scott is very much in the minority. Tim Scott, you know, to some extent, Nikki Haley, a few of the powerful Republicans, a few senior Republicans, a few of those running for president are sort of just coming out and saying it. But even Ron DeSantis, who is a guy who, you know, cannot suppress his need to always just stake out the most right wing ground imaginable in every instance, even he's tried to make this about, you know, electric vehicles and stuff like that. Even he, from what I've seen, has not just come out and said, fuck the workers, you know, they should work for less, etc, etc. The theory I'm offering, uh, which, you know, is admittedly a bit of a convoluted one about these two kind of ambient political moods, I think merits some further discussion, because the two things I've said are obviously intention. And I'd like to think some more about this. Uh, We're recording this, by the way, I think just a little less than 24 hours from uh, Biden's visit to Detroit, which, of course, a huge victory for UAW. And also, I think, speaks to the fact that however anti-political the sort of, uh, you know, whatever's in the air seems to be, there's something else going on, something more constructive going on as well.
There's been this wave of strike activity across, well, the United States, at least. Other countries, too. As well as, uh, I mean, I, sorry, I hate to return to the uh, Robert De Niro, Travis, <laughs> no, by Travis all means. Bickle commercial. That's what inspired those thoughts. A sort of glib thing I used to say was that I something I, I respected about Generation X was their well-publicized skepticism of selling out. <laughs> you know, uh, the Bill Hickses of the world saying, like, you do a commercial, you should frickin' die, man. <laughs> <laughs> you should you do a commercial for the freaking gap. We should line you up against the freaking wall and shoot you in the face, yeah, man. Classic comedy. And you know, that that was a sentiment that was very prevalent among that generation at least in its popular culture. But I mean, I don't know, when that commercial comes around and there's this kind of uproar of uh dislike and and upset I found that heartening in a way. I found it heartening the idea that collectively we've decided, listen, the man's had a lot of divorces. He does a few bad movies, you know, f- fair enough. We can but, forgive little fuckers. Yeah, but but this, <laughs> this far and no further. Yeah, well, fundamentally, all of this, everything we've been discussing here is about deference. It's about there being less deference among the part of, you know, people who might watch a Robert De Niro commercial where, you know, Travis Bickle plugs for Uber, but also a sense among powerful people, whether they're, you know, politicians with actual power or people with cultural power like famous actors that they have to show some deference towards their constituencies, even if it's just at the level of, of rhetoric. Whether that's, well, the way John Fetterman dresses is problematic, but it's actually because it's elitist. Whether that's, okay, well, Travis Bickle is not actually going to be making an appearance for Uber after all. Or whether that's, well, yeah, of course, I'm a Republican senator from Missouri, and I, of course I support workers striking for a raise. Yeah, we have a great movie to talk about, but before we get to it, there's one last news item I want to raise. I uh, don't really have a huge point in raising this, except that it was an article I was reading that I found very beautiful, and I'd like to share it. And it's about a man who is in the movie that we watched today, Mr. Martin Scorsese. It's in GQ, written by Zach Barron, a profile called Martin Scorsese, I Have to Find Out Who the Hell I Am. And there was a lot in this article, this profile of him, that really moved me. Uh, I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs here. And um, again, not for any clear point, but just because I think it's really beautiful and I'd like to spend a little time with Uncle Marty. The book is still being written on the work, all seven magnificent decades of it. But Scorsese knows something now about what happens when you get old. Getting older is a relentless process of paring down. Getting older is an exercise in letting go. Let go of anger. Quote, I'm at the age now where you just, you'll die, unquote. Let go of fitting in, of going up to rouse with important people. Let go of other people's opinions. Quote, That doesn't mean you don't take advice and you don't discuss and argue, but at a certain point, you know what you want to do and you have no choice, unquote. Let go of the idea that you might someday visit the Acropolis. Let go of the idea that a movie needs a beginning, a middle, and an end. Maybe the middle's all around it, you know? Let go of the Academy's opinion, of the idea of being part of Hollywood at all. Let go of the experiments for the sake of experiments, that action sequence in Cape Fear, directing Paul Newman in The Color of Money. Quote, I tried those things over the years. That time is gone now. Let go of the studio system. Quote, I thought I was in a Hollywood group. It didn't work. Let go of self-delusion, which is maybe the hardest thing of all to let go of. Shape the thing you're making into a pure expression of the thing you're making. 
quote, cut away, strip away the unnecessary, and strip away what people expect, unquote. Later on, the article in outlining his career, it mentions that in the 1970s, there was this period when he made Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, all in fairly quick succession. The author writes, there was a clarity of focus he had that for a time was undone by partying and searching and wandering, a period in the late 1970s that almost ended in death. He writes, What followed were some years where the purity of his work and his concentration faded, years in Scorsese's work when you could be influenced. I knew that I only felt comfortable when I did Mean Streets. I didn't care what they were going to say, you know? Then Mean Streets was successful, and Alice doesn't live here anymore to a certain extent, and Taxi Driver certainly was, which again, I didn't expect. But after that, I became concerned what critics would think and what I'm going to be doing, and that didn't work out. Ultimately, the morass I fell into there and the weakness was that I tried to change the way I worked, and I was only partially successful with it. Eventually, it all became Raging Bull, which was basically just stay away from me. If you don't like it, I can't help you. I'm leaving. I've left the building. After that, the article goes on to talk about how Scorsese spent, uh, the writer writes, years fighting to make the movies he wanted to make, sometimes by making movies he didn't particularly want to make. It's only recently he said that the clarity of focus, the one from the early years where he was doing exactly what he wanted to do, had returned. I don't know. There's a lot in that article that moves me very deeply. The whole getting old of it all. Uh, I mean, we're talking about just one of the most storied careers, uh, a man whose life is history. It's not just a man's life. It's There are certain icons of culture. Bob Dylan's another one who sort of like belong to world history. Well, someone who's the architect of images and narratives that are now a canonical part of, you know, American culture and, and world culture. It, it's certainly no secret that movies like The Color of Money and Cape Fear were done at least partially out of commercial considerations. But my God, I mean, th- like they're, they're very good. <laughs> I mean, what an amazing career where like that's the hack work. I was surprised that he said that he only recently sort of regained that clarity of focus that he had in the 1970s. I know that The King of Comedy, for instance, which is my favorite of his movies. Oh, it's incredible. More of a De Niro project than his. Right. When he talks about it in interviews, he seems rather distant from it, which is, <laughs> I mean, Christ, I don't Marty, know. Marty, King of Comedy. I liked it. <laughs> I was listening to the commentary track on a recent Blu-ray of Wolf of Wall Street with Glenn Kenny and Nick Pinkerton, and Kenny was saying that he heard from reliable sources that basically Wolf of Wall Street was DiCaprio's project, and he kept pursuing Scorsese, pursuing and offering more and more money until <laughs> until the point where Scorsese said, okay. Thank God he did. <laughs> thank, thank God he did. But, you know, it's remarkable that he's been able to, at this late stage of his career, you know, he makes these movies for 200 millions of dollars that have that incredible clarity of focus that don't really bend to commercial considerations and something like Silence or The Irishman which have this very um, I mean as expensive as they are they have this like stripped down quality the works of an old man there are a few people who occupy a higher echelon of society than Scorsese does he can go anywhere he can meet anyone he says jump they'll send a private jet to pick him up And yet he seems to have kind of, uh, at his rich man level, pared his life down to an almost monastic existence. He just is at home, and then he goes to work, and he watches movies all day. And he talks a lot in the article about how everyone around him has, you know, so many of his friends have died. You can actually kind of see a life lived through his films. The early ones have the piss and vinegar of youth, and the middle ones, maybe as good as they are, reflect both the searching and the compromises and the ambitions and the failures that we have in the middle stretch of life. 
you know, maybe Cape Fear is when you take the bad job to pay for the house. <laughs> maybe Kundun is when you try and you fail. I like Kundun. It's, but, when, you, it's, you know, when, it's when, you, when you try to become a motorcycle guy and it doesn't work. Mind you, I'm like Christopher Maltesanti. I like Kundun. <laughs> And then there's The Wolf of Wall Street, which channels, you know, I think what most of us do late in life, you know, lots and lots of sex and cocaine. I know in other interviews, he's talked about the troubles he had with the studios. He said that the editing of movies like Gangs of New York and The Aviator, both produced, not coincidentally, by Harvey Weinstein, who tended to throw his weight around as a producer. And then The Departed as well, which I understand was a sort of troubled production. And The Departed is like one of the most flagrantly commercial movies of his career. Still uh, a lot of fun to watch. It's, I mean, it's great. Yeah. I love it. Um, but I think I think in his Oscar speech, it was that he's maybe or maybe it was another speech where he said that it was his first movie with a plot. <laughs> I kind of feel like maybe that that phase of his career, maybe something like The Departed represents a sort of late middle age of, you know, one last attempt to play by the rules, one last attempt to fit in the system. Well, right. And then silence is so kind of grand and metaphysical and introspective. And I think it very much is a sort of Owl of Minerva movie when you, you know, it's a film that someone produces when they're older and they're kind of contemplating their own mortality and they're wondering what it all means. I'm sure there are other filmmakers who are capable of careers like this. Scorsese, just through both luck and talent, has been able to have this career. I think Paul Schrader has had a version of this career with more compromises and a smaller amount of resources. Scorsese is a, has just over the years become a strong enough brand that in the twilight of his career, he can make these rather moody, introspective movies with $200 million of venture capital and tech money. I basically think you have to treasure any artist or creator who is able to continue it to be fresh and interesting into later work. Right. It's so often the case that people... Well, they atrophy. And their works end up being sort of a burlesque parody of, you know, kind of the same thing done over and over again, but lacking whatever insight or flair at... Woody Allen disease. Incidentally, I wonder what that will be like for this podcast. Like if... I wonder if we'll be Scorsese's or if we'll default to the norm of just like, you know, let's say it's uh, it's 25 years from now. You know, the Patreon's at $100,000 a month, but then it's just the two of us... Talking about the 2016 primary. Yeah, yeah. We're just like, hey, guys, Al Gore, you seen this? Anyway, it hasn't happened yet. I feel like I've never had more fun doing this podcast, and I hope that shows in what we've been putting out. But speaking of selling out, since Will brought it up, we do have a Patreon, Will. Why don't you tell the folks at home about that? Folks, you know about it. Patreon.com slash Michael and us. At this point, it's not about awareness. It's about... uh, Yeah, it's about message saturation. Most recent Patreon episode was about The Blind Side, which is uh, a, a, shall we say, uh, a bad movie. Uh, Other recent Patreon episodes have tackled such subjects as the Jerry Lewis telethon, Star Trek, the motion picture. You can also hear a solo documentary episodes that Will and I respectively recorded. His about Orson Welles and mine about Pink Floyd. Oh, and not too long ago, an episode on the Nostalgia Critic talking about Pink Floyd's The Wall. Possibly, well, not possibly, just indisputably the worst piece of content in any medium I've ever consumed. Patreon.com slash Michael and us. For over 50 years, his cinematic genius has thrilled audiences around the world. His films have inspired George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Francis Coppola, Brian De Palma, and Martin Scorsese. As a director, he has won every major international film award. The Grand Prix in Venice and Cannes, the Silver Bear in Berlin, the Golden Award in Moscow, the Oscar in America. He is Akira Kurosawa. Now he brings us his most unique and personal vision. 
his dreams. Well, well, we've been speaking about uh, Scorsese, and I actually didn't know you were going to read from that article, but it's very fitting given the film we watched this week. We watched Akira Kurosawa's late period film, The Incredibly Beautiful Dreams, a film I've wanted to talk about on the pod for some time, and a film which I think it's fair to say, at least the time, and you know, I don't know about the Japanese response to it, but certainly in the West, I think it was largely regarded as a minor work, you know, something that, yes, was visually beautiful, but was a little bit shallow. Yeah, that's certainly the sense. I mean, this is one of Akira Kurosawa's last movies. It was released in 1990. It came after the one-two punch of his 1980s comeback films Kagamusha and Ran, after a long period of relative inactivity in the 1970s. Kurosawa had a comeback abetted by some of his Western admirers. Francis Ford Coppola helped present Kagamusha. Spielberg and Lucas were involved in Ran, and uh, Steven Spielberg also facilitated the funding, the Western funding of Dreams through Warner Brothers. Funnily enough, I'm not sure where this fits in, but I mean, one of the famous things about Kurosawa was that, I mean, he was he was acclaimed in Japan, but he was widely regarded by Japanese critics as almost too Western. Uh, he was perceived as pandering to Western markets. You know, somebody like Ozu for many years was thought of as an untranslatable filmmaker. Well, and to this day, I think it's fair to say he's a lot well less well known than Kurosawa, mm-hmm. right? The lay yeah. person in North America, at least, if they've heard of a Japanese filmmaker, it's probably Kurosawa. Not Ozu. But Kagamusha and especially Ran were such grand films that came almost packaged as career capping works. The three that came after, I think, even to this day, are still regarded as sort of like afterthoughts to those movies. I haven't seen Rhapsody in August, but I'm a great fan of Matadayo, his last movie. But Dreams is certainly an ambitious and grand-scaled movie in a way, but not in the same way as Ron. It's a series of, you could call them scenes, but really tableaus. Vignettes. Each one representing a different dream or perhaps nightmare, as the case may be. They are allegedly based on dreams that Kurosawa himself had, all tied together by a figure identified only as the dreamer, played by the actor and singer Akira Tarao, and by a child actor in the first two segments. When the movie was released, the critical reception was polite but cool. The movie was regarded as, as you said, a little shallow, a little preachy as well. Many of these vignettes are united by a theme of man's relationship with nature. Yeah, and perhaps the way, you know, human civilization has abused nature, which obviously is a perennial theme in post-war Japanese cinema. And I believe Shiro Honda, the director of Godzilla, who was a friend of Kurosawa, served in an important advisory capacity on dreams. Yeah, he's credited as a creative consultant. Honda was a sort of assistant director slash general assistant on all of Kurosawa's later movies, Kegamusha onwards. And in fact, one of the segments of this movie, The Tunnel, I believe is based more on Honda's wartime experiences than Kurosawa's. Well, it would make sense because Honda fought in the war and Kurosawa was actually rejected for military service in 1930 and uh, did not end up uh, being conscripted into the army. I think you could also say that Mount Fuji in red in particular is a segment that shows a certain influence of a Shiro Honda. 
let's uh, discuss each of the vignettes, each of the dreams in turn. I think it's worth discussing the film as a whole, but I also think it'll be useful, particularly for people listening, people who haven't seen the film, to just lay out what each of these is doing. The dreams are not necessarily uh, linked by any kind of wider narrative arc, but if there is a trajectory to them, it has to do with the you know Kurosawa surrogate character's own trajectory through life. The first two, he's a child. In the third, he's kind of an adolescent or a young man, and then he's older in the remaining ones. And in the very last one, there's a conversation with an old man that I think sort of brackets the film's trajectory through the different stages of life very nicely. But let's talk about each of these in turn well. I mean, they are short 10, 15-minute vignettes. The first is called Sunshine Through the Rain. Uh, It tells the story of a young boy. It's not exactly clear when this is set. Many of these dreams visually and kind of temporally, I think, occur in a sort of liminal space. There are ones that take place between night and day, between, if you want, tradition and modernity. This one is a more traditional setting, I think it's fair to say. The Kurosawa surrogate character is a young boy, uh, walks outside one day into a sun shower and is told by his mother that when the sun shines through the rain, uh, this is when the foxes have their weddings and they don't like to be disturbed. Now, of course, the camera then cuts from the house and we see the little boy walking through the forest. He wants to go see the foxes. And eventually he stumbles upon this just beautifully rendered procession of foxes, although they really are more like folk characters. They're not animals. They're people wearing, you know, traditional masks and costumes doing a sort of procession. That's right. And it's a very ritualized procession. They're sort of looking to and fro in rhythm and then, you know, stopping and starting and things like that. It's, it's very much like something you would see in an opera or something like that. But inevitably, the foxes see the little boy, and when he returns home, his mother says that an angry fox has come by the house and left behind uh, a tanto knife. He's then instructed to go and beg for forgiveness from the foxes. She says, don't come home until you do, and she tells him that he needs to use the knife to commit a sort of honorable or perhaps a dishonorable suicide if the foxes don't forgive him. And what follows is, I think, one of the most beautiful shots that I've ever seen in a movie. The little boy then walks across this beautiful field of flowers. He's told his mom, I don't know where the foxes live. And she says, well, they make their homes underneath the rainbows that you see on days like this. And so the last thing we see is the little boy walking across this field of flowers towards the rainbow, his fate unknown. And this is an important detail, I think a theme that runs through all of these vignettes. They are little stories, certainly, and they have a dreamlike quality. But one of the most important dreamlike qualities they have is the fact that they often end, as it were, in the middle of the action. We often don't really find out the exact fate of the characters or, you know, exactly how the, the, the stories end, which, of course, is exactly how dreams work, right? Well, they also begin in the middle of the action as well. The characters and their settings are sketchy and undefined. It was not actually immediately apparent to me that the dreamer is the same dreamer from beginning to end. It's not really tied as a narrative like that. That's right. I mean, there's only two actors that play the Kurosawa surrogate character. There's the young boy and then the actor and singer who plays him in all the other ones. I would say these dreamscapes, I mean, you know, my dreamscapes look very different from these because I'm not a man who was born in Japan in 1910. But while the content of the dreamscapes is different than mine, the sort of 
mood and the, shall we say, storytelling style of them is similar. The way everybody's moving just a little too slowly, the way that they seem to spring from other associations and sort of fizzle out kind of as the dreamer is awakening. Well, and the kinds of preoccupations that within the subconscious that inspire them. I mean, I've never had the exact dream that's rendered in sunshine through the rain, but I've definitely had dreams or I definitely did have dreams as a child that involved, you know, transgressing against some explicit instruction given by somebody who was a parent or was kind of like a parent or was some authority and then facing some kind of humiliation or consequences because of it. I do wonder if the movie's critical reception, the sort of consensus that the movie is slight, is a response to that unfinished sketchbook quality of all these vignettes. Certain critics called it preachy, but there's really something I think elemental about it. Yes. The storytelling is not fancy and sophisticated. No, and in some ways, I mean, neither is the filmmaking exactly. I feel like there is an awareness on Kurosawa's part with some of the dreams in particular, where you know, he wants to shoot them very simply, and the artificiality of the environment is really part of the text in some way. Well, it's remarkable. Kurosawa... There's no filmmaker, no filmmaker who is more skilled at blocking a scene. You know, there's nobody who is a greater master of the frame. You look at High and Low or Throne of Blood or one of those films. And in this, yeah, the visual style is so pared down. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but in the Mount Fuji in red sequence... The way the camera just shows these characters at the side of the cliff and the camera is sort of drifting in these long, long takes. Yeah, there's a kind of a seismic shaking that's going on. And like a movie like High and Low, the blocking and the compositions are much more complicated than they yeah. are in a scene like that. There's a sort of a drift quality in the Mount Fuji and Red sequence that's not unlike being adrift in a dream. That's right. I think uh, elemental is exactly the word to describe it. So the second dream is called The Peach Orchard. And I I think just on the level of the response it elicited, I mean, this one is my favorite. I find this just incredibly moving. I think this was the third time I've seen this film. I mean, this one almost makes you weep. It's so beautiful. This one is set on a spring day, the Doll Festival. A young boy spots a girl inside of his house. He's serving tea to another young woman who I guess we're to presume is his sister and some of her friends. And he's saying, hey, where's the other girl? And And, you know, they have no idea what he's talking about. So he traces her path outside the house and ends in a place that was once an orchard. Here he meets, you know, the orchard sort of uh, conjures, summons up these uh, folk characters who are similar to the ones that we see in Sunshine Through the Rain, the previous vignette. You know, they're sort of anthropomorphized manifestations of nature and they represent the spirit of the orchard. And at first they condemn the boy because his family has cut down the orchard. He replies that he was always saddened by the destruction of the orchard. And, you know, there's a back and forth. They tell him, well, that was only because you couldn't get peaches anymore. And he explains to them that, no, he's, he, he can buy peaches whenever he wants. He, he just loved the orchard. If you're going to watch any part of this movie and not the whole of it, go onto YouTube right now and just watch The Peach Orchard. It's probably about 10 minutes long. And no verbal description of it that I can give will, will ever do it justice visually or emotionally.
But the dolls realize that the boy's tears for the peach orchard are sincere. So their reward is to allow him to walk through the orchard and bloom one last time. And then just as quickly, the beautiful organ music that's playing stops. And we see all the stumps of the peach trees that have been cut down. The boy follows the little girl from the beginning of the dream past the stumps before she disappears uh, and then arrives at a single young peach tree in bloom. Again, just watch this one. Go onto YouTube and watch it. Uh, I can't really do it justice, but I I think this one is uh, incredibly beautiful. The whole film is, but this one really stands out to me, and it always has. Now, this next segment, The Blizzard, is probably the one I enjoy watching the least, but it is also the one that feels to me most like a dream that I would have. There's something (laughs) enveloping about it. It's simply four mountaineers who are trapped in a blizzard, very overwhelmed with snow and atmosphere, and you basically see them. It's almost like they're moving in slow motion, pushing against this blizzard as one by one, they all succumb to the blizzard. And it really feels more like a succumbing than a violent death. They almost disappear into the blizzard. It's not so much a defeat as it is a willing capitulation. Until finally, the last mountaineer is confronted by a woman who I learn is a figure in Japanese folklore, a certain kind of spirit, the Yuki Ona. But she represents the spirit of the mountain, right? Or the or the spirit of the blizzard. And she tries to lure him to join his fallen compatriots to succumb, but he resists. The next segment, The Tunnel, this is the one that's based more on Ishiro Honda's war experiences. It's the first of a couple more overtly political segments of the film. Would you describe this as political? Um, Well, in a very kind of small p sense of the term. And in fact, this be a moment to read from a passage of a Kurosawa biography. It's a dual biography, actually, of Kurosawa and his lead actor, his usual lead actor, Toshiro Mifune, called The Emperor and the Wolf, rather magisterial tome by Stuart Galbraith. Kurosawa was having a lot of trouble raising money in Japan for this movie. And as I said, thanks to Steven Spielberg, he actually raised the money in the West for it. Galbraith writes that Kurosawa laid the blame at the feet of conservative Japanese businessmen. One segment of the film was to depict the destruction of Japan's nuclear power plants and the catastrophic release of radioactive clouds. Modern Japan may unilaterally oppose the nuclear arms race, but, he said, it depends on nuclear power more than any other country in the world, save France and West Germany. Kurosawa felt such thinking immensely hypocritical. Quote, We only think we need nuclear reactors because the power companies have convinced us we need to use a lot of electricity in order to live well. If one company were to back my film, it'd have to worry that any other company it does business with would take offense. They're just too conservative to deal with the subject, unquote getting a bit of ahead of ourselves for one of the later segments. And I, I don't know if that's actually true. I don't know if that's the reason why the studios actually did turn him down. But in the subconscious, this movie depicts a sort of uh, working through of Japan's history in the war and the subsequent fallout is part of it. And I think that's what makes this movie a sort of, there's that word again, ambiently political movie. Yes, I mean, the tunnel might be the one that's the easiest to describe. In the tunnel, a man dressed in military garb approaches a giant cavernous tunnel, presumably under a bridge or something like that, although so long that all he sees is black. There's no light visible from one side to the other. 
a dog, I think something like a German Shepherd, some kind of rather menacing dog, emerges from the tunnel, is quite hostile. He then proceeds to walk through the tunnel, comes out the other side, again, into a setting that is very sort of liminal. You know, it's not really clear whether it's day or night. And that very much reflects the narrative of this dream, because it also seems to take place somewhere between life and death. Eventually, uh, a soldier who is a a private who uh, served under the man comes out of the tunnel. We can tell that he's dead because uh, all of his skin is blue. He begins to insist that he's not really dead, uh, that he actually, you know, survived and went home to his family. The man explains to him that that was just a dream that he had, and he actually died uh, five minutes later after recounting it. Eventually, the same happens again, although it's an entire platoon that comes out, and, you know, he has to basically order them to turn around and, you know, explain to them that they're dead. Now, there were a few things that interested me about this scene. I mean, again, I really do love the way it's shot. I love how there is almost no color in it, with two exceptions. There is a red light that hovers over the exit to the tunnel, which is sort of the only splash of color. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure what it's supposed to represent. You know, it could represent a beating heart or something like that. Probably nothing quite so literal. And then there's a light somewhere off in the distance, which I think it's reasonable to assume or, or it could be imagined is the destination point for the man walking through the tunnel. You know, it is the literally the light at the end of the tunnel. Now, I don't have a, a definitive interpretation of what uh, the tunnel means exactly, but I didn't read it as especially political because the war is given no specificity at all. Well, I don't know. I mean, we all know what war we're talking about. There's an air of doom and shame over the war in this. I mean, I, I think I know I think that's fair. And of course, we all we all know exactly what war is being evoked here. But fundamentally, that's the occasion for this dream rather than the subject of it, if that makes sense. I mean, if this is about anything, it's about, you know, one officer's guilt at having survived while others perished and his inability to move beyond this episode in his life. But if we were interpret this movie as anything more than one artist's indulgent walkthrough of his own subconscious, if the images of the movie are to have any sort of uh, wider significance... You know, I'm hesitant to diagnose the subconscious of a country uh, half a world away that I've never been to. But when you see all those zombie troops and, you know, he's the lone survivor and he feels this immense sense of guilt, there's no didactic point here. There's no one point. But what there is is a sort of working through of a generational trauma. The images are too loaded for it just to be one survivor's guilt. Absolutely. And I mean, you brought up shame. I think that's quite evident in this uh, in this dream as well. Uh, you know, I said that uh, people should watch The Peach Orchard if they watch one of the dreams. The next one, I would say you should probably watch. I mean, you should watch the movie. But if there was going to be a second one, I think it would definitely be Crows, which is the next dream in the film and was one that seems to have, I mean, bafflingly to me, been received as sort of particularly slight or, or met with a, a lukewarm reaction. In this one, the dreamer is an art student visiting an exhibition of Vincent van Gogh's work. He starts asking around where he can find Van Gogh, and in fact, he finds him in a cornfield somewhere where he's painting. Yeah, he walks into the painting The Bridge at Arles. To me, this scene is beyond belief. A scene that looks like a painting does not make a painting. If you take the time and look closely, all of nature has its own beauty. And when that natural beauty is there, I just lose myself in it. And then... As if it's in a dream, the scene just paints itself for me. Yes, I consume this natural setting. I devour it completely and whole. 
And then when I'm through, the picture appears before me complete. But it's so difficult to hold it inside. Then what do you do? <laughs> I work, I slave, I drive myself like a locomotive. As we've already said, one of the movie's themes is humankind's relationship with nature. And this is a different perspective on it. It's trying to harness or tame, maybe duel with nature through the medium of art. Yeah, this is a beautiful sequence. And incidentally, Kurosawa writes in his biography, uh, published, I think, first perhaps during the the mid-1970s and then perhaps republished in the early 1980s. My edition is from 1983, I think. But Kurosawa writes, After looking at a monograph of Cezanne, I would step outside in the houses, streets, and trees. Everything looked like a Cezanne painting. The same thing would happen when I looked at a book of Van Gogh's paintings. They changed the way the real world looked at me. It seemed completely different from the world I usually saw with my own eyes. It's very simple and I think a very beautiful statement. One of the things I really like about Crows is the use of matte paintings and the fact that the character just kind of wanders freely or rather the matte paintings allow him to wander freely through all of these beautiful Van Goghs. Van Gogh in this segment and in real life for that matter is sort of capturing the ecstatic truth of nature. Sometimes when you're on, you know, Twitter or something, particularly ever since Elon Musk took over, you're kind of forced to see these like blue checkmark accounts that will show you like, you know, hey folks, do you love Starry Night? Well, what if it was bigger? Well, well, that obviously, <laughs> but then, but then, like some of the you know absolute worst Greek statue accounts that oh, are yeah. like love that are like guys. when did art become this? And it's like a Cy Twombly painting when it used to be this, and it's like the most banal <laughs> shit, like realistic piece of art ever. And like you know, you, you go to nature, and and the human eye is more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Like Van Gogh in his paintings, you know, captures one way to look at nature one particular way that the light hits the bush. There's still, you know, in some quarters, this idea that the greatest thing art can do is replicate reality. But something this segment captures is the fact that there is no one reality. Cezanne or Van Gogh or Monet are all capturing different shades of reality. That, incidentally, I think, is one of the projects, if you want, uh, of this movie, both in terms of whatever messages one might interpret from each of the dreams, but also just in terms of its, I'm going to borrow the word from you, its elemental celebration of beauty. Beauty is something that is, I think, almost by definition threatened by the empiricism of the modern age. Beauty and also nature. There's a subtext running through this film that, you know, aspects of modernity are almost tragic, even if they're ineluctable. I'm going to do something else a little hack and say that, you know, that reminds me very much of the main preoccupation of Ozu's work as well. Well, I'll just say that whenever I see one of the great Japanese filmmakers, and you can name a lot of them, many of them happen to be interested in the juxtaposition of tradition and modernity. Right. And of course, it would be possible to do such a juxtaposition in a way that you know celebrates modernity or perhaps regards tradition, regards nature even as something anachronistic. But that's not what you tend to find in post-war Japanese cinema at all. You know, the next two dreams, Mount Fuji and Red and The Weeping Demon, both take a sort of jaundiced eye to technology. They are sort of nuclear nightmares, one of an actual nuclear apocalypse 
apocalypse taking place. That's Mount Fuji in red. And then the weeping demon, the one that follows, is more post-apocalyptic. But I mean, you know, sorry if this is stating the obvious, but I mean, if nuclear energy, nuclear power, nuclear weapons are not the empiricism of modernity, you know, coming to fruition, I don't know what is. I mean, they are emblematic of our belief that, you know, we've, we've cracked certain codes of the universe, that the universe is something we can conquer and master. And of course, among other things, that changes our relationship to nature, because nature becomes not something, you know, uh, to go back a little in the film, not something as in uh, the peach orchard or sunshine through the rain that is imbued with some kind of a spirit that commands respect. Nature is instead reimagined simply as matter that we can use instrumentally for our own purposes. And so that's certainly a theme that runs through Mount Fuji in red and The Weeping Demon, but I think it runs throughout the film as well. There's also an idea in both these segments that nature will find a way in the end. We may harness nature briefly, but ultimately nature will win. So we've alluded to Mount Fuji in red already, but I mean, uh, this one I I thought I remembered very well, and in terms of kind of the the broad strokes I did, but it had a different sense of proportion than I remembered, because basically there are two sequences in this one. It opens with what appears to be an eruption on Mount Fuji, although if you look at it closely, it's really more of an eruption behind Mount Fuji, and the people of Tokyo are panicking. And as the film critic Donald Ritchie, who wrote about Kurosawa uh, notes, you know, it kind of seems for a moment you half expect Godzilla to pop out. But what you learn is that all six of the nuclear reactors at the Tokyo Nuclear Power Station are melting down. I remembered these scenes of chaos and terror being sort of the majority, maybe being three quarters of Mount Fuji in red. It's actually maybe a quarter or maybe a third generously, but I think less than that. Most of it takes place uh, on a beach as essentially several characters, you know, I guess there's what, five characters, three adults and two children are just sort of on the beach waiting for death. The juxtaposition of the scale of these two tableaus from this, yeah, Godzilla-like scene of hordes of people running from the mountain and, you know, elaborate special effects, and then cutting to this one long shot, basically. There might have been cuts in there, but it feels like one long shot of just a few people at the side of a cliff by the sea, while this red mist, which we learn, you know, a fraction of a gram of that red mist will give you leukemia just slowly approaches them. The juxtaposition is quite haunting. The sight of a few people helplessly swatting away a sort of existential threat that's all around them. That, I don't know, that feels like a dream I would have. Yeah, the radiation is represented by these kind of great clouds of colored dust that come towards them. <laughs> Before we move on from this one, there is something uh, very particular that Mount Fuji in red uh, makes me think of. The line in it that's always stood out to me is there's an exchange between two of the adults where one of them says, you know, death is one thing for adults, you know, who've, who've lived their lives, but what about for children? And, you know, there's two children on the beach with them. And this made me uh, recall something that apparently uh, you can see very near the monument uh, in Hiroshima, where, you know, if, you haven't, if you're not familiar with it, there is a monument that shows the exact point of the blast. 
you know, the epicenter of this explosion. And somewhere nearby it, I'm not sure how close. Uh, this is something I read, incidentally, in uh, Tony Ben's diaries. And he visited Hiroshima. And there's a, a story he recounts about seeing this. I think there's a sort of memorial within a memorial to this child who was, I guess, somewhere near the blast and was just sitting there eating lunch, you know, on the way to school, on the way back from school. I'm not sure. And of course, the child was was vaporized instantly. And you know, the lunchbox was just reduced to this kind of like singed heap of metal. And I think about that image quite a lot. I mean, there's something so painful and tragic conveyed by all of that. You know, even though uh, the bombing of Hiroshima was an act of mass death, of mass murder, the just individualizing it to this single child who was sitting there eating their lunch uh, has always really stuck with me. And Mount Fuji in red uh, evokes it for me very strongly. The movie has been trending darker The penultimate segment continues in a similar vein. It's the weeping demon where the dreamer is now wandering uh, without explanation through this bleak post-apocalyptic landscape. Um, It looks a little bit like a 90s CD-ROM game. (laughs) A lot of teal crystals and stuff. He reaches this area where the weeds and the dandelions have grown to six feet tall, and he meets this mutated man who tells him that he's entered a fallout area after a nuclear holocaust where everyone's been painfully mutated but can't die. And then he shows him this very bleak... Sort of a sort of pool where they're all drinking, very, like the most yeah. abject of the demons. Very Dante-like vista. Now this one has you know very little dialogue. It's very straightforward in many ways uh, in what it's doing. But I actually didn't necessarily interpret this one, even though it follows in the film. It, it appears to follow. I mean, it could almost be the next scene, and you know, literally the the same character from Mount Fuji in Red. But I had a somewhat different interpretation of it because there are a number of lines spoken by the demon that I think suggest a possible. Uh, alternative interpretation. Uh, One of the things we learn about the demon is that he used to be a farmer, uh, and there's some line about how he, he dumped tank trucks of milk into the river to keep prices up. He also says something about how there's a class system among the demons, you know, so even in the, you know, in this kind of post-apocalyptic fantasia, there's a, yeah, there's a class system among the mutated creatures that are dwelling on this hellscape. And so I kind of, I I kind of didn't interpret this as a post-apocalyptic thing as such. It actually feels like a very jaundiced take on uh, post-war Japan, on, on capitalist Japan, where, you know, despite all the innovations of modernity, there's still a class system, there's still you know, hierarchy and the demon is somebody who uh, very much like the guy who apologizes in the previous dream for believing in nuclear power. This demon who used to be a farmer sort of is apologetically explaining that he used to dump trucks of milk into the river to keep prices up. So I read this as a statement about capitalist modernity in Japan, you know, I think which Kurosawa was clearly very, uh, very cynical about and very uh, disenchanted by. And see, I think class and subjugation and hierarchy are natural. (laughs) And that at the end of the day, we all revert to our natural state. (laughs) Finally, we reach the conclusion village of the watermills the movie here returns to a more serene mood and style but not without returning to some of the ideas that have been running through the previous vignettes the dreamer is here in a quiet village where he meets an old man who's sort of tending to the water in the village and talks to him gently about the way that modernity has intruded on the village the way that it's polluted the waters the way that technology has interrupted the traditional way of life 
Yeah, the man says something about how, you know, we've destroyed nature to make things more convenient, but, you know, more convenience is not always good. Here in the uh, Watermill Village, he explains the people live naturally. They more or less die in the order in which they were born. And, you know, I'd completely forgotten the second portion of this dream after the exchange with the old man by the Watermill, which I think is in many ways the more important part of it. The old man announces that he has to leave because there's a funeral procession going on for someone that's died, he himself being something like 87. I can't remember what age he specifies. But he goes to join the procession, uh, having explained that a funeral, you know, people think of it as a sad thing, but it's actually a very joyous occasion. You know, it's a celebration of all that's good in life. You know, to live is exciting and life is something we should be grateful for. I just want to read a paragraph from Donald Ritchie on this scene. The garrulous old person stops preaching eventually and then magically the picture returns to the dreamlike enchantment of the beginning. A joyous funeral procession is coming down the road. It is all music and movement and innocence, finding cause for contentment in death. One remembers the rice planting song at the end of Seven Samurai, a celebration of the rightness of nature. This Kurosawa celebrates here by showing us rather than telling us about it, and hence, in these final moments, returns to his picture, A Promised Artistry. So Richie is is a little more down on the film than I am. I think this is very beautiful, and I mean, for me, it's hard to have any interpretation of the village of the watermills and the funeral procession at the end of it. It's hard to interpret that as anything other other than Kurosawa, if not celebrating his own life, communicating to us that he thinks life is worthy of celebration. And perhaps if we can remember that ultimately we're part of nature, death is a joyous occasion too. Mm-hmm. 